I did figure out what was wrong with uh, last week. The entire system on my computer was corrupted for Proclaim. So I literally had to delete every related file, reinstall it, and then re-upload it in order to get it to work. Were they? The issue continued on until this morning. Yes, and I fixed it this morning. Because I was hoping it was just a software issue that they had been able to work out, which unfortunately was not the case. All right, we have a flying baby. Are we ready? So we're going right now? I'm just glad that ended up on the stream. So present for Grassi. All right. I think we're in good shape to start. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Jesus, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for your word. We, we praise you for the truth of your word and the fact that we understand it's objective. We understand that it's solid. It's something that we can, we can trust in. It's demonstrated. It's, it's actually self-demonstrative in the fact that it is actually proven that it's your word, both through the fulfilling of the prophecy in the Old Testament, the fact that we're able to see that in a literal fulfillment, but also, Lord, in the fact that we see how it changes lives. So we see the intellectually that it's obviously your word, that it's something we can trust. And we also see in our own lives as we're conformed to your image that it is something that we can count on, and we're grateful for that. As we're interacting with opposing viewpoints, which is the remainder of this particular study, I ask that you continue to give us discernment as we're going through the different options, different perspectives on eschatology, on end times. We ask that you help us in this endeavor and that you continue to empower us both to understand this at a deeper level, but more specifically so that we can know how to apply that so that we can walk in light of eternity. I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. It works better when the, uh, when the program actually works. So, change from last week. We are still studying the rapture of the church. Now, that might surprise some of you because we haven't studied the rapture of the church in about a year now. Um, <clears throat> but on that note, we've been studying almost subsections of that topic. So the rapture, just by uh, remembrance, just to bring it to your remembrance, is an event that we see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. We also see this in 1 Corinthians 15, John 14, verses 1 through 3. And the basic idea of it is that Jesus makes us a promise. Now, this is very specific because he makes us in Christ, those who are in the church, a promise that he will not only be coming back, but he's not going to come to the earth in this coming. He's actually going to appear in the clouds, and we are going to go to him. So drastically different from everything the Bible has ever said about the second coming. And the majority of revelation on this topic, with the exception of revelation, um, is actually in the Old Testament. We actually hear that he's actually going to put his feet on the Mount of Olives in the second coming, that he's going to judge the world, um, and that he's going to bring in his kingdom through the events that happened through the second coming. Not so the rapture. And so that's what we've been studying. We've noticed this biblical distinction that Jesus promises a different coming. Now, this isn't, this actually gets kind of in the weeds because what a lot of people will accuse us of is they'll say, well, you just believe in two second comings. Well, the first coming, as it's understood through prophecy, I'm not even bringing out what actually ended up happening in the Gospels, but in prophecy, there was an initial coming 
where the Messiah would come as a suffering servant. We see that in Isaiah. And later, we understand that there's a second coming where he comes to judge the world and bring in his kingdom. This is neither of those comings. In fact, what you'll notice is he does not come to the earth, but rather, again, I can't emphasize this enough, we go to him. And the purpose of this is to, as we read about in Revelation 3.10, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and 5, is to take us out of the world so that he can bring judgment. And we also see this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 through 13, uh, where we hear about this restrainer that's being removed in order that these things can come to pass, the Holy Spirit's ministry through the church. So in order to define the rapture, as we've talked about before, it's actually quite easy. We go to three different verses to figure out what it is. We go to roughly three verses to figure out when it happens. Um, takes about 15 minutes to an hour, and we're all, we're all done. We've discussed the rapture. But because it is such a controversial issue, we cannot leave it there. It would be irresponsible to leave it in that position. So what we have taught through is the idea of imminence, which is the most attacked portion of the rapture of the church in biblical history, in my opinion. Imminence is this idea that not only is Jesus going to come back for the church, but in the uh, parameters that are discussed in the New Testament, giving credence to that, it is never, we're never given a qualifier. We're never given a prophetic event that has to happen first in order for the rapture to take place. Now, we get that through a thorough study of the New Testament as it pertains to imminency. Imminency, again, is that basic idea that Jesus could come back at any moment. And we see that we as the church are given uh, directives to watch, to wait, to await the coming of the Lord, but never in a vacuum. We're always told to do so while it combines this with the idea that we are to be living a godly life. Every reference to the coming of the Lord that you see on that screen is also paired with the idea that we're to do so. I mean, whether you're looking at John 14, and you can keep going through John, and you actually see it's linked to that. You see that in Revelation 22, towards the end of the book, in the, the last statement made is basically the same thing. We are to watch and wait for a specific reason. Now, our ability to come up with arguments that support our position doesn't mean that we do so, again, in a vacuum. So there are many arguments that people bring out that would oppose our viewpoint. But even in the midst of that, we're actually able to see that a lot of these are good arguments, meaning that they're logical uh, extensions of a theological position. And so, in order to be responsible as we're interacting with opposing viewpoints, we looked at what I consider to be the best arguments out there. So though, those which are as thorough, biblically based as possible. I, I may not agree with their opinions. I, don't necess- I certainly don't disagree with their assertions. But that doesn't mean that they don't come from a specific place that we should understand. Um, if you don't understand the position in which somebody brings forth a viewpoint, you truly don't understand their position. So that being said... The reason they disagree with a pre-tribulational rapture, which is what we teach at Flushing Bible Church, is because they have an alternative perspective. So in the midst of these alternative perspectives, you have what's known as the post-tribulational rapture. This idea that they're expecting Jesus to come after, post, after the tribulational period. 
after the time of Jacob's trouble. And the reason they do this is because they see the second coming as the only other coming. Now, when I mentioned that there's no two second comings view, that's the post-trib rapture crowd. They're the ones who push this idea. And the reason they do it is because they see the rapture passages, the three that we mentioned, being synonymous or in addition to or complementing the second coming passages. So Matthew 24, Revelation 19. And because of that, they would object to all the things above that I that I have already proclaimed that we agree with. So that's why we're looking at the post-trib crowd right now. There are other viewpoints we're going to be getting into later, but for now, we're going to be spending our time with the post-tribulational rapture. Now, in order to understand the post-trib crowd, you first have to understand their theology. You have to understand how they even get to that opinion. Because it's not as simple as them just saying that there are no two second comings. Right? We, we simplify it in order to understand it. <clears throat> now, a lot of things about this, a lo- oftentimes, not all the time, oftentimes they tend to be historic premillennialists. So not all the time. Again, I can't emphasize that enough. But sometimes, I- I- at least in higher scholarship, they will actually believe in a literal thousand-year kingdom. They will actually believe in a literal second coming. They will believe in judgments. But the problem is, they would conflate. I, I would actually, tongue-in-cheek, call this the conflationary viewpoint because they conflate the judgment seat of Christ with the great white throne judgment. They conflate the second coming with the rapture. They, they combine a lot of ideas that are similar as if the similarity is demonstrative of equality. So that being said, we've spent a lot of time on the post-trib rapture up to this point. This is, I believe, the eighth week we've spent in it. But the most important part of interacting with any opposing viewpoint is to look at how they handle these three passages. How do they handle 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? How do they handle the great resurrection chapter of the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 15, where it talks about our resurrection, the fact that the rapture is actually going to be a reunion between all members of the church all at once with the groom, as the bride finally goes to the groom. How do they interact with John 1 through 3, where it says that not only are we reuniting with the groom, but we're going back to the Father's house? How do they they interact with these viewpoints? So in order to answer those questions, we spent five weeks looking at how they interact with those points. Um, And what what conclusion did we come to? Well, if you're looking at uh, John 14, 1 through 3, they completely sidestep this idea of Jesus making temporary dwelling places in heaven. Now, what's interesting is Jesus says that if I go to the Father, I'm actually going to be coming back to take you to myself. What preceded that, though? The fact that he's making temporary dwelling places for the church. Now, again, the basic presupposition of the post-trib viewpoint is Jesus promises to make temporary dwelling places in, in heaven. They don't even disagree with it. It says it right there in the Bible. And then Jesus promises for us to uh, be taken to himself and that with him will always be. But since he's going to, to the earth in this situation, he just takes us to himself and then he takes us to earth. That's the basis of their viewpoint. I, I say it pretty bluntly. I don't put as many adjectives around the words and try to make it pretty. Um, because again, no matter how you slice it, I have yet to find a good post-trib viewpoint that actually makes sense of this idea of a temporary dwelling place in heaven. 
some of them in the historic premillennialists will actually say, well, that is the, the dwelling places, that's only for the people who died, right? So not for the people who were alive and remain in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So the Christians who died, they'll be in a temporary dwelling place in heaven, and then they'll come with the Lord to the kingdom. So that's tr- how they try to make sense of it without really even seeing the parallels between the rapture. Because what does 1 Thessalonians 4 do? It takes the dead in Christ, yeah. But it takes those who are alive and remain as well. And John 14 doesn't say, I will take each one of you individually to heaven after you die, which is actually a historic, historic is not synonymous with truthful or accurate. It is a historic uh, interpretation of that verse. But that doesn't mean it's right, because again, they're conflating the different verses. And 1 Corinthians 15, not 1 Corinthians 1 chapter, or verse 15 and 54, it's 15, 1, 54. It doesn't matter. I wrote that wrong. Just pointing out my mistakes. Um, again, they, they conflate the different issues. And so that's what we've been trying to interact with is, since they're conflating the issues, how do they exegete these passages and do they do it accurately? And the answer is, sometimes. Portions of each of those verses, they'll do accurately. But as a whole, you miss the overall viewpoint because they're reading it through the lens of a post-tribulational rapture. Yeah, Nancy. Some of them do. Some of it, it really depends on if they are reformed or if they're not reformed. So what Nancy was asking is, do some of them see the kingdom as a Jewish kingdom? Those who interpret the Old Testament literally and see the Jewishness of the kingdom, even looking at the New Testament, looking at Revelation, seeing the 12 tribes within the kingdom and all of these things being highlighted, or the fact that the kingdom and the, is brought through the covenants, which are Jewish, um, I would say some of them take it at, take the uh, kingdom as a Jewish kingdom, but a lot of them are they're pretty uh, conspicuously wishy-washy about who it is. They just mold them together as the people of God. Some of them get a little bit more hyper-focused on the Jews and the Gentiles being one, but the Jews still retaining their identity. A lot of them don't, though. Does that answer the question? Okay. Let me know if you have any more. In the meantime, that's kind of the trajectory that we're on. We're really wanting to know how they interact with the viewpoints. That being said, they do also have arguments for their position. Now, we've made it through several of the arguments. If, if you'd like more information on that, I, I welcome you to go back in the slides. But we ended on the fourth argument. And I'm going to get there really quick for us. So, again, just so you know, and I think this is, I mentioned this last week, this is probably one of the more important arguments for us to have in our reservoir, for us to be aware of. And not just be aware, but be able to interact with. Because this is the one that's going to carry us through every other viewpoint, not just the post-trip crowd. Um, because a lot of other viewpoints, and I mean everyone that's not a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial viewpoint, will see the elect of Matthew 24 as something other than the Jews. So what are we trying to prove in the midst of this idea? Well, what we are trying to do is we're trying to prove that, and let's, let's go to Matthew 24. Let's put this back into perspective. I don't even think we read it last week. So I would like to uh, become reacquainted with that particular verse. 
So in Matthew 24, if you start on verse 29, it says, But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. So what did we get a picture of? Well, we got a picture of the return of Jesus Christ at the end of the tribulational period, because what does it say in verse 29? But immediately after the tribulation, okay, pretty self-explanatory. Um, and then what, what we hear about is we hear about a trumpet. We hear about the elect, which in the New Testament, what is the church known as? The elect, um, gathered from the four winds. But there's a problem. If all I did was take this out of context, if all I did was look at verses 29 through 31, and I had no other information to testify to, to and analyze as I'm trying to look at the context of this verse, what would I actually come to a conclusion on? I would believe that this is talking about the rapture at the end of the tribulational period, because I don't have that context. What is the context that I'm missing here? Well, if you look through... Matthew 24, you have to look at the initial point at verse 1, because this really sets the stage for what Jesus is trying to accomplish in this verse. It says in verse 1 that Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him, and he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. Again, that's a prophecy of AD 70, the destruction of Jerusalem and the annihilation of the temple. But what follows is what's most important. When, and it says, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, this is after, this is probably not a long time after, but this is after, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered, and bam, you have all the verses that follow. But what's really critical about this is that Jesus is not making arbitrary arguments. He's not giving you a prophecy about the church. But what he is doing rather than that is who, well, let me, let me put it into more perspective. Matthew 23, what was that about? That was the scathing rebuke of Jesus to the rulership of Israel because they rejected the king of God's own choosing. This deliverer, this uh, final fulfillment of the Davidic covenant this seed of David, who is to bring forth the kingdom. They rejected him, and he ran them through a cheese grater for about an entire chapter. But what followed that is having discussed the unbelieving portion of the Jews, because remember, there are always two portions of the Jews, right? There are two sides of that coin. There's the bulk of the Jewish nation, the Israelites, who are unbelieving. But there's another side of that, which is a smaller remnant of Israel who would believe in Jesus, who would believe in God, who would trust him, who would walk with him. And that is the people, or that is the group of people that he is addressing in Matthew 24. He's not talking to the entire nation. He is talking to the remnant. And it is scriptures like this that I believe the Jews will have access to when they do, in fact, do what we see in Romans 11, when they call upon the name of the Lord, when they believe on him on a national level, and he rescues them in the end of the tribulational period, which they'll learn later that he actually provided for them throughout the tribulational period leading up to that. 
So it's not just this hands-off until the end of the trip. He actually provides for them and sustains them through that. But that's the context that we're looking through. And we actually see, if you, if you read through Matthew 24, and I'm not going to do it right now for the sake of time, but I welcome you to do it. There are a lot of Jewish ideas mentioned in this. This idea of don't travel on the Sabbath. All of these things that are only relevant to the Jews. And so when he's doing this, he's addressing the remnant of Israel. There are other times when Jesus is referencing people other than the remnant. So if I go to John 14, and I'm looking at the upper room discourse, yes, the people he's addressing are largely Jewish, but it's not, the context of it is not limited specifically to a remnant of believing Jews. It is quite simply, it, it is a remnant of believing Jews, but it is also branching out farther because what he's doing in that section is he's releasing church age truths in seed form, in small, uh, we'll call it slim down form, like a compressed file. And he brings that out in greater detail in the epistles, in the letters of Paul, Peter, James. And the reason for that, and why that's significant, is because if you read through the Upper Room Guest Course, which is fantastic, you get a lot of ideas that would have been completely foreign to Jews in the first century. They, they have no idea about the sustaining ministry of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Um, that's something that they've seen on an individual level for temporary periods of time, like David. Please, Lord, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Why would he say that? Well, because he could have this Holy Spirit taken from him, because it was a temporary indwelling. What do we have now, though? We have a permanent indwelling. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And so, drastically different. And so, when he's interacting with them in Matthew 24... It's different because Jesus is giving them what? The components to see the sign of his coming in the end of the age. Not the rapture, okay? And so when we read this portion about his return, what we need to ask, because he doesn't really give us a lot of information here. He doesn't address the people other than calling them the elect. So what does elect mean? Well, it means choice. It means those who are... um, you could say privilege, but that carries a lot of baggage these days. So we'll just call it choice, like, uh, like the best, right? Choice meat, like really, really good. And so what I try to prove, and I think we do so pretty handily, especially looking at the Old Testament, is again, because Jesus doesn't describe who the elect are in that passage in the context, we have to go back to figure out who they are, right? So we see that in the English language as well. If I say the word he in a sentence. We don't just get to decide who he is. We have to look for the last proper noun of male, right? The last male proper noun. We believe in males and females. Um, So that being said, that is the basis for the lens that we're looking at. We're we're trying to exegete the passage, and um, I think... This is the best way to do it. So what do we find out from the Old Testament? Let's, now we're reviewing last week. We realize Israel is known as choice. They are known as the elect in the Old Testament. Now, with Hebrew, we don't have the word eklektos like we do in the Greek. We have a different word for choice. Same meaning, just a different language. We see that in Exodus 19, Deuteronomy 4, verse, or chapter 7. We see this idea that Israel was chosen, separated for a purpose. We also see that they were given a role. 
This basic role was that they were to be a light to the other nations because God's goal was never just to have the Jews saved. His goal was to have the whole world saved, which is why we see scriptures like in John where Jesus died for the whole world, where he paid the price for the whole world's sins. We see that in the New Testament. That being said, they failed that role. What did we learn from Deuteronomy in relation to this idea of this role? Well, there were blessings to be given to the Jews when they would obey the role. This is part of the Mosaic Covenant that we see in a lot of detail in Exodus 19 and 20, which is brought out further in Deuteronomy. But in the midst of that, since they failed, we now have an entire chunk of verses which talk about the consequences for failure, the consequences for not walking with the Lord. Um, And they're pretty severe. One of the biggest, most severe consequences was their destruction and dispersion. Now, dispersion was never a permanent term as it's relating to the Jews. It was always a disciplinary term relating to the fact that there would also be a regathering later. The dispersion, though, was uh, related to judgment. So what do we see? Well, we looked at the last couple of weeks that this idea um, of her dispersion with the Babylonian captivity was indeed a dispersion, and it was pretty severe. They were dispersed for 70 years, and only a small portion of the nation of Israel came back at the end of that Babylonian dispersion to be in the land, to rebuild the temple. But what we see is that moving forward, moving past that, there are biblical prophecies that were still at large and that were still coming to pass in terms of their proclaimment about another dispersion that's yet future. What we know, and this is really what's very interesting, is there were also scriptures that we looked at that related to not just a dispersion, but a regathering, which makes you wonder. They're already regathered after the Babylonian captivity. Why would we have these scriptures? Well, the biggest reason for that is because they were going to yet again disobey God in a way that would require discipline because they were still under the Mosaic Covenant. So that being said, we actually find that there are two regatherings that are still yet future to us this day in the 21st century. The first is there, um, I, I should say two regatherings, I said dispersions, two regatherings that are yet future. The first is a regathering in unbelief for the sake of judgment. We see that pretty, in a very, very specific language. What are we seeing right now? Well, In the last 40 years, we've gone from a small portion of Jews in the land to over half of the entire world's population of Jewish descendants being in the land. Okay, why do we care? Well, the Bible says it's going to happen. The reason for that is because in order for Antichrist to make a covenant with the many, who in the book of Daniel we see as the Jews, they have to be in the land as a nation in order to fulfill that covenant. Which, if you look at basic church commentary history starting in 1700s, making your way up to the 30s and 40s, you actually, you don't see people literally analyzing this. They would look at this as, oh, Jews will never be back. They've been separated as a, as a land for over 1,500 years, 1,800 years. There's no way they're going to be coming back. So this must be spiritual. This must be applied to the church. That's like the basic consensus of these passages. But what's interesting is that all of that changed when the biblical prophecy got to full fruition, literal fulfillment, with what happened in AD 1948. 
um, when they regathered as a nation. Not only that, but when they beat the Gentile Arab armies, which had staggeringly overwhelming odds that should have decimated them. I mean, if you look on a map, it's just this tiny little blip that is Israel that's getting every single nation around it hates it, yet it still exists through God's provision. That's kind of a catch-22, though, because the whole point of their continuance as a nation is for them to be judged. So, again, take that for what it's worth. That's what the Bible prophesies. So, in the midst of this future judgment, we learn, sadly, two-thirds of the nation is going to be destroyed um, through the tribulational period. And what's, what's more is that not only would this happen, but the remaining third would come to faith through the events of the tribulational period. And in the midst of that, they're going to do what's known as calling upon the name of the Lord for their salvation. They're going to do what they should have done at Jesus' first coming, and they're going to be doing it at prior to his second coming. And so that leaves us where we left off. And so let's go through the Old Testament a little bit and analyze this to begin with. So this last point is the critical one, but it's not one that we could bring out out of context. So I'm structuring these arguments in such a way that let's pretend like any of us will remember all of this information. Uh, in an ideal world, we'd have photographic memory and we'd be able to memorize this. In an ideal world with somebody that has no background for the Old Testament, who doesn't have a thorough background of the covenants, this is ideal. Because when we see the word elect in Matthew 24, who, who says it's not the church? Why, why, would it be, why would it be Israel? It doesn't say that it's Israel. Why couldn't they just say Israel? Well, you have to know the Old Testament to come to that conclusion. So that being said, let's know the Old Testament to come to that conclusion a little bit better. And let's turn our Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 4. That's where we're going to start today. Wasn't that nice? That was a 32-minute introduction. It's got to be a record. Um, not a good record. That's not a good thing. <laughs> just, just so we're clear. So in Deuteronomy chapter 4, we're going to start in verses 29. It says, But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search for him with your, all your heart and all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things have come upon you, in the latter days you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. For the Lord your God is a compassionate God, and he will not fail you, nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your fathers, which he swore to them. Why is that significant in the context of the Mosaic Covenant? Well, what promises did he make to them? Well, he made all of the promises of the Abrahamic Covenant. That's the one that they're looking at right now, which promised what? Land, seed, and blessing to the nation of Israel. What are they going to get in the kingdom? Land, seed, and blessing. All right. Super, super easy questions. These are the best ones. They will actually get the land that God promised them. The specific land with specific geographical uh, lines, concordance, or coordinates, whatever you want to call it. Um, this specific land they were promised is what they will get. The specific blessings of not only just being in the kingdom, but the blessings that come along with actually being in fellowship 
with their God, not on a temporary basis, but on a permanent basis. This is an idea that we see brought out in the New Covenant, um, where they're given a new heart. These are the promises that this is referencing, and this is what we're going to see come to fruition in the kingdom. So that being said, let's go to chapter 30, same book, starting in verse 1. It says, so it shall be when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you will call them to mind in all nations where the Lord, your God has banished you. Okay. So that we're seeing the land covenant brought out verse two, and you will return to the Lord, your God and obey him with all your heart and soul, according to all that I command you today, you and your sons. So there will be a repentance that happens as a nation as they turn to the Lord. And it says, verse 3, Then the Lord your God will restore you to captivity, from captivity, and have compassion on you, and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. So what is it actually promising there? Well, first of all, it's saying that the Lord is the one who's scattering them. Keep that in mind. But this is a regathering and a restoration, not just as a nation, but as a nation in the specific land God gave them. Verse four, it says, if your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there, the Lord, your God will gather you. And from there, he will bring you back. What does that remind us of? This idea of him gathering them from the ends of the earth. I'll leave that there. It says, uh, the Lord, your God will gather you. And from there, he will bring you back. Verse five, the Lord your God will bring you into the land with your father, fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. And he will prosper you and multiply you more than the fathers. Again, they're going to repossess this land. Ignore my annoying commentary. I'm just trying to make a point. Verse 6, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. This is actual national regeneration that's being talked about here. Um, it says, verse 7, The Lord your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies and those who hate you who persecuted you. That is the actual judgment of the enemies. Not just of Israel, but also of God. In verse 8, And you shall again obey the Lord and observe all his commandments, which I have commanded you today. Then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hand, in the offspring of your body, in the offspring of your cattle, and the produce of your ground. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good, just as he rejoiced over your fathers. And if you obey the Lord your God and keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in the book of the law, if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul. Again, what is actually being promised? That last verse, or we'll call it the last two, three verses, 8, 9, and 10, Give us what's going to happen as a result of this. The blessings of the kingdom, the blessings of fellowship and communion with God as a nation. Something that I would argue they haven't enjoyed since they passed through the Red Sea and worshiped God as a result. Um, and that was short-lived if you follow the next couple chapters. So that's the promise that they're giving. Let's go to the book of Isaiah next. I'm just, I'm trying to make the point here because... We, we joke um, that the, the actual Torah, with the exception of possibly Micah, 
are some of the most neglected books in the Old Testament, um, which is pretty staggering considering how often Jesus quoted Deuteronomy, which is what we just read from. Which is, it's sad, is what it is, because you're missing such a big bulk of what God has revealed. And Deuteronomy has way more than just a bunch of useless laws that don't apply to the church, which is the general consensus of that book that I've been unfortunate enough to hear pretty often. So let's go to chapter 27, starting in verse 12, book of Isaiah. So 27, we're going to start in verse 12 through 13. It says, In that day the Lord will start his threshing from the flowing stream of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered upon, gathered up one by one the sons of Israel. And it will come about also in that day that a great trumpet will be blown. Hmm. And those who were perishing in the land of Assyria, who were scattered in the land of Egypt, will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. That sounds rather specific. So we're talking about a regathering, and we have a trumpet. Again, similarities don't equal equality, but we still have a lot of verses to go through. So and now I'm, we're going to go through all of these verses because this is just so important. Let's go to chapter 43, same book. Uh, starting in verse 5, it says, Do not fear, for I am with you, and I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. And I will say to the north, Give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. So what is this actually promising? He's going to be pulling them from the ends of the earth, and he's going to be regathering them. We learned from the last couple of verses, not only just regathering them to himself, but so they can go into the land. Again, so, so significant. And again, if this were talking about the Babylonian captivity, this would say gather up maybe a quarter of the nation and take them to my land. It's not saying that. It's saying all of them, every single one of them. This is yet unfulfilled. Why am I saying that? Because this is in Isaiah. This was talked about well before what we see in the book of Daniel. So this can't be, a, even though this is prior to the Babylonian captivity, this cannot be talking about that because we have this gap and this inconsistency between what happened at the end of the 70-year captivity in Babylon and what we see here. So, quite different. Let's go to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 16. Starting in verse 14. It says, Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will be no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But as the Lord lives who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north, and from all the countries where he had banished them, for I will restore them to their own land, which I gave to their fathers. Again, it's God who's restoring them. It's not limiting this to Babylon. It's not limiting this to Egypt. It is from all the lands which I have banished them. Again, super important 
Let's go to chapter 31, same book. Starting in verse 7. It says, verse 7, For thus says the Lord, Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob, and shout among the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I am bringing them from the north country, and I will gather them from the remote parts of the earth. Among them, the blind and the lame, the woman with child, and she was in labor with child. Together, a great company, they will return here. With weeping they will come, and by supplication I will lead them, and I will make them walk by streams of waters on a straight path in which they will not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Again, we can't emphasize enough, and we're pretty much out of time. We'll look at the last few verses next week, and we'll conclude this particular argument. But when we're looking at trying to figure out who is this elect that Matthew 24 could arbitrarily be be referring to. We, we can't just make an assignment about who this is talking about, because what is Jesus answering? He's answering a question about the, what's going to come to pass before the ends of the age. And if he's doing that, he, and if he's, and we see this throughout Matthew 24, he's reaching into biblical prophecy quite a bit. There's a little bit there that isn't super clear in the Old Testament, but the majority of it is Old Testament prophecy. So by the time we get to Matthew 24, um, towards the portion which is discussing his actual coming, which I'm not Matthew, but 26 through 29 is what I'm remembering. We can't just make an assignment about who the elect are. Which, again, reemphasizes the very biblical fact, which we'll use in a hundred other areas of theology, that elect does not mean God's chosen church. It means very specifically a choice group that was chosen for a purpose. And the purpose that God chose them for, he will bring to pass. Again, God is the one getting the glory for what he is doing. And if you have a nation that completely dispersed in the first two centuries, in 80, 100, and 200, that that area, completely dispersed, left the land, joined a hundred other customs, and then miraculously not only rejoined, regathered to the land, but for the first time in the history of mankind, they had a language, not just any language, the language they were speaking before they were dispersed. They have common lineage and their customs. And what do they want to do more than ever? They want to build a temple. Now, they don't realize they're building it for the Antichrist, but that, that is a separate issue. So, like, when we're looking at these things, when God makes a promise about the future, we can know that we can trust it. And what's more is every single prophecy that has ever been spoken in the past that has come to fruition came to fruition in, absolute, in an absolute literal sense. There was no figurative fulfillment of any prophecy that I have been privy to. I've been waiting to hear for, for years at this point, and nobody, you can Google it, there's not a single one. Um, so when we're looking at these things, we're going to spend a little bit more time on who the elect are in Matthew 24, but just bear in mind when we're making an assignment in deciding who the elect are. We're doing it on the basis of the whole counsel of God's word. We're not just picking and choosing what we want it to mean. Rather, we're going through it and we're making that determination on the basis of prior revelation of scripture. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your promises. And not only your promises, Lord, but you have given us a unique position in history where we're actually able to see not only that you make promises, not only that you fulfill promises, Rather, Lord, that you are not, that you're fulfilling these things in absolute 
specificity in the exact way that you promised that you would. So when we read promises in Romans 8 that tell us that we are going to be glorified with you, that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, even in the midst of persecutions, trials, and all of these things, that we know that those are absolute promises that you have made us, that we can look to you and we can trust in those things, that we can know that we can trust in you as we're being sanctified and conformed to your image through the Holy Spirit's work while we're studying your word. Now, Lord, I ask that as we're studying these things that you can bring to remembrance the things that are going to help us to walk with you on a moment-by-moment basis as we're trying to draw to a more intimate and dependent relationship with you. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.